Hello and welcome to episode two of the Aaron Rupar Show. Today I'm talking with Marissa Cabis about all things George Santos. Marissa is one of the leading reporters covering Santos these days. She's broken a couple major stories on her Substack, which is called The Handbasket, uh, including one about Santos's past as a drag performer in Brazil. So we get into that, but also we get into Marissa's connection with George Santos's district. She was actually born there and her parents live there. So she has a lot of local color. Uh, we talk about the redistricting in 2022 that kind of made it more possible for Santos to win after his failed bid in 2020, which didn't make any waves at all nationally. I, for one, did not know who he was when he was running in 2020. And so we talk about all of the context there and much, much more. And as we were talking, I realized that there's so much going on with George Santos, so many scandals, so many misrepresentations, and so much interesting context speaking both to his district, American politics, more broadly in the state of the Republican Party that I'll definitely have her back on sometime down the line to get even more into it. I should mention at the top, this has been kind of a crazy week for my family. Uh, My daughter Mia spent Monday night in the hospital. She's doing better now. Turns out she had kind of a severe ear infection that led to a tonsil infection that led to her being dehydrated and she needed fluids and antibiotics. And so um, if I seem a little bit sleep deprived, that's why. And if you hear some screaming at a couple different points in the background, um, she is home today doing better. So it's good to hear her screaming, but uh, you may hear her. uh, uh, You may hear as I'm hearing her right now, actually uh, acting up in the background a little bit. I do have a good mic. So maybe. Maybe you won't hear that at all, but um, that's the situation you're here at, ho- here at home. But I'm very thankful that when I announced on Twitter that she was at the hospital, there were so many well wishes that came in. Uh, so I really appreciate all love and support this week. And thankfully, I can report that we're all home and doing better now. I have a lot of good guests coming up in future weeks. Um, and if you missed the first episode last week with Ron Filipowski, please check that out. Um, the podcasts go up on YouTube if you want to watch the footage of these conversations. And eventually, I'll be integrating video clips and more visual elements as well. But you can also listen to them wherever you get your podcasts. So I ask that you please subscribe. And if you have an extra minute, please leave a positive review because that helps get the word out and spread the, the podcast further. So without further ado, uh, let's get into the conversation I had with Marissa Cabus. Welcome to episode two of the Aaron Rupar Show. I'm very excited today to have Marissa Cabus joining me. Uh, she has become one of the foremost George Santos reporters in the country right now. Um, she's also an MSNBC columnist and author of a sub, her substack, which is called The Handbasket. Um, which, you know, Marissa, full confession here. Um, I've really only become familiar with your subsect since it kind of became uh, dominated by George Santos and the Daily Santos. And now, you know, you're doing kind of weekly updates. What was the initial, I guess maybe that's a good question to ask right at the beginning. What was the initial idea for the handbasket? Do you plan to kind of revert it back to that once the the Santos hysteria dies down a little bit? Um, sure. Well, first of all, hi. Thank you yeah. for having me. This is very exciting. Episode yeah. two. Um, yeah. And I guess I should just mention Marissa and I have known each other on Twitter for what feels like forever, forever. years and years. <laughs> and we did talk for a Q&A for my newsletter um, a couple months ago now where we talked about George Santos. But this is the first time we've been on like a video call or really kind of met in any way beyond a phone call. So nice to meet you. Yeah, me too, even though like I know you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the original concept for the handbasket was just to always make sure that I had an independent outlet for my writing because <clears throat> the media industry is so unpredictable, as you know. And um I I wanted to make sure that there was a place that I could not only write, but that people were aware of that it wasn't just like some you know random little blog that I would kind of contribute to whenever I had a chance. 
And so the hand basket is, is obviously an allusion to hell in a hand basket. Yeah. And um, it was, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted it to be when I first started it. I just knew that there was a lot of crazy stuff going on and I had a lot of thoughts about it. And I kind of just wanted to, uh, you know, take some notes as, as it all unfolded. And sure. then um, the Santos story exploded and I luckily had already built this, you know, admittedly quite modest at that point platform for myself, but it's only grown since then. Um, but there's definitely a chance. I mean, it, it's not going to be George Santos forever. There's no, no. way. Um, he's not, he's not Trump. I mean, he, he uh. has sustained a lot of news cycles and, and he has defied the odds, which is something that I have keep saying to people as far as like the longevity of this story. Mm. But yeah, I do. I do want to go back into other topics at some point. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, to, to talk about how you got into Santos a little bit, um, I think a good place maybe to begin is talking about your connection with New York Third, which is the district that Santos now represents. It's, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's a mostly suburban district that also includes a little swath of Queens. But it's a Long Island district that has been uh, historically a swing district. However, um, as listeners are probably aware there was the whole controversy last year in New York with the proposed redistricting being rejected by the courts, which led to a special master taking the lead in redrawing these districts, which made the third district that Santos represents much more competitive. Um, But it's also interesting to note that neither in 2020, when Santos first ran in an unsuccessful bid for Congress, or in 2022, did he face a primary challenge. So even though Santos won defeating Robert Zimmerman, a Democrat named Robert Zimmerman, which always throws me off because, of course, that's Bob Dylan's (laughs) name as well. So when that pops in my brain, I'm like, wait, is that really his name? Robert Zimmerman? (laughs) Yeah, um, different one. A little less successful, I would say, given that he lost to George Santos. But um, yeah, so this did not seem like a plum pickup opportunity for Republicans. And, you know, uh, there's been reporting even that some of the national Republican or- organizations didn't plow any money into uh, the district at all. So they were kind of leaving Santos on his own, um, and yet he somehow won. So let w- w- first for listeners, tell us about your connection with the district. If I, I recall that your parents live there still, right? And um, is it the case, Marissa, that you grew up there or did your parents move there later on? Uh, just what's your background with New York Third? Yeah, I grew up there. I moved there okay. when I was two years old. Um, I was born in New York City, um, and then we moved out there. And um, I, you know, I spent my formative years there. My my parents are still there. A number of my best friends have moved back. So there's a lot of people I care about who live in New York Three. And so um, beyond the connection of just having grown up there, it's that. The people representing New York three right now have actual impact on on people that I care about very much. Mm -hmm. And I've also been a keen observer of the district for uh, a lot of my life. I I got into politics quite early Um, in high school. I was already very clued into politics and, you know, aware of the different dynamics. And I've watched as this district has gotten more conservative, particularly during the Trump years. And um, as you mentioned, there was this redistricting that took a seat that was reliably Democrat. I mean, it's not like Democrats were winning this seat in a landslide, but at the same time, it was not considered competitive either. There was always a healthy population of Republicans here, or there rather, (laughs) I'm right now. Um, (laughs) uh, But um, 
there, it wasn't considered a real threat. It was more just like a faction. Um, and now um, they suddenly had this opportunity to, to seize some more control. They saw the changing dynamics on the ground and they saw that they had Lee Zeldin running for governor alongside Santos during this cycle. He, um, for those who don't know, uh, was a congressman from Long Island as well, a Republican, a huge Trump supporter. He voted not to certify the 2020 election results, so he's an election denier. Mm-hmm. And he was running a very well-funded, very successful bid for governor. He didn't end up winning, but he his his impact on the race was pretty substantial in that mm-hmm. um, people like Santos and, and others in New York who were probably not going to win by most people's estimates ended up winning. And so the, the whole the whole game shifted and and New York three shifted with it. Yeah, because that's an aspect of the story that I'm not sure people have um, fully processed is that there were four House seats in New York that flipped from Democrat to Republican in the 2022 cycle, one of them being Santos's. And that's exactly the Republican margin uh, by which they control the House's four seats. Now, of course, um, it's not so simple as to blame it all on New York, um, but these races really mattered. I mean, it's not just kind of some random House seat, you know, like a deep red seat in Alabama or something like that, where a Republican would be representing this district no matter what. I mean, this is a competitive district, as are these other ones in New York that Republicans won. And so there's, you know, the scandal story of, of Santos himself and everything surrounding that. But there's also kind of this broader political story of a Republican um, who obviously had a lot of issues and uh, baggage somehow getting through relatively unvetted uh, in winning a crucial seat here. So um, another thing I want to ask you about is to back up just a step here, the 2020 campaign that Santos run, and he ended up losing to a Democrat named Tom Susie, who ended up uh, not running again in 2022, which opened the door for Robert Zimmerman running and Santos defeating him. But I was thinking back on this because obviously I cover politics for a living. I was doing that back in 2020, of course, as well. And George Santos, I had never heard of at the time. And of course, you know, there's a lot of Republican candidates. There's a lot of Democratic candidates in red districts who I don't necessarily hear of. You know, every cycle there are, you know, a dozen or two dozen House seats that get a lot of attention because either they're swing districts or they're high profile races. But the Santos Suzy race, and I, I apologize if, if I'm mispronouncing that gentleman's Swazi. name. Swazi. Okay, thank you. Swazi. Um, okay, well, thank you. That uh, I, I, had, I had a feeling as I was saying that I was probably saying that incorrectly, so I appreciate that. But um, this was not a race that really attracted any sort of national attention whatsoever. Um, your parents live in that district. I mean, do you remember having any conversations in 2020 about George Santos, this kind of mysterious guy running for a seat in Congress, or was it just kind of like the Democrats going to win? We're not worrying about it. We're not really spending a lot of time thinking about this guy. Well, I think part of the reason, just to go back to what you said about not, it's not even being on your radar in 2020, is because Tom Swazi wasn't someone that was really on anyone's radar. Um, whenever I talk about him, I, I say that he is truly one of the most unremarkable people to ever make it into Congress. He he didn't have, he wasn't really known for anything. He was extremely centrist. He was part of the problem solvers caucus. So, you know, trying to work across the aisle on like, but he didn't have like a pet issue. And it's really incredible because the district he was representing is right outside New York City. There's incredible wealth, highly educated, lots of power concentrated there. And he did nothing to put that district on the map. He kind of 
you know, got along to get along. So when he had a Republican challenger in 2020, I think people were just not inclined to pay attention to that race in general, even if it was some, you know, crazy random guy that no one had ever heard of. I remember being in the district in 2020 and, you know, also remember it was COVID, height of COVID, things were not operating the same way. So people weren't out and about as much, but I do remember seeing some Santos lawn signs and, and kind of seeing the name around and being like, who is that? Um, yeah. But there was never... A, there was not any real fear in 2020 and he ended up losing by a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, was it, he, there wasn't any reflection on what happened because it, he didn't come close. Mm -hmm. um, and then that's why it seemed like he truly came out of nowhere in 2022 when that wasn't really the case. Do you remember anything about his campaign in 2020 in terms of what was his pitch? I mean, you know, in 2022, Obviously, he was campaigning on being an, an openly gay Republican. He had kind of this American dream story of being the son of Brazilian immigrants and kind of a hard scrabble beginning, climbing his way up to Wall Street. I mean, was that basically I'm assuming that was the same pitch he was making two years prior. Is that basically what you remember, too? Or do you remember even maybe you don't remember anything at all about his campaign? I, I don't remember yeah. his campaign. I think I remember very vaguely reading about him and him listing that resume, maybe. But like it's there's so much that's happened since then. It's like hard to remember that way back in 2020. Um, but he he ran on that same resume and no one called him out on it because no one thought he was going to win and no one cared enough to really invest any time into looking into it. But then kind of the same thing happened in 2022 and the vetting should have happened two years prior and it didn't. So that is sort of also what what contributed to him being able to sneak in this time around. Yeah. So before we get to some of your reporting on Santos, let's talk a little bit about 2022. And I'm curious if you remember a moment or maybe talking with your parents or other people that you know in the district where, and you know, you already brought up the Zeldin campaign and how that sort of raised the, you know, it, it, it raised the profile, raised the possibilities for Republicans because he made a pretty serious challenge against Hochul to win uh, the governorship there. But was there you know, any one moment or a period of time where you realized, hey, this Santos guy might actually be able to take this seat. And, you know, thinking about the 2022 campaign, at any point, were there any red flags raised in your mind or people that you knew in the district that maybe this guy wasn't quite who he was portraying himself to be? No one I knew in the district saw anything of him. Mm -hmm. he didn't, they didn't think of him at all. He wasn't he wasn't even like a character considering how insane his bio is and, and the, the crazy things he's alleged to, to donors and to voters. He was just not on the radar. And I think the race in general was not on the radar because like I said, Swazi was such a non-entity. And then Robert Zimmerman, who um, just as backstory, Swazi ran for governor unsuccessfully and lost okay. the, uh, the Democratic primary against Kathy Hochul. So, mm -hmm. so he couldn't run for re-election for the seat. So that left it open and Robert Zimmerman stepped in and he was sort of, he was who everyone expected would run because he was a, a, a known personality in local fundraising and democratic politics. But still he wasn't like a local celebrity. He wasn't someone that everyone outside of politics knew. So this race just wasn't on people's radar and it wasn't a presidential year. And Kathy Hochul, they thought had it in the bag, which she obviously didn't not and came really close to losing and um 
so people just weren't talking about it. And the only thing that really raised a flag to me was being in the actual district. I remember the day before election day, I happened to be out there and there were Santo signs everywhere. I mean, I've, I've never seen so many lawn signs in my life. Like I've been to New Hampshire during like the democratic presidential primary and there weren't that many signs around there. Like that's how insane it was. Wow. And, and, you know, for, I, I don't think people realize like signs are very expensive, like mm-hmm. in terms of a campaign, like paying for signs, like a physical thing. And it's just something that like, you don't necessarily put your money into. And he clearly had tons and tons of money to get these signs and put hundreds all up and down the same main stretch of road just to kind of like pummel people with his name and so I I was seeing it and I started feeling like what is going on here like there's there's a a concerted push there's more Santo signs than Zeldin signs out here like Mm. there's there's obviously money here and there's obviously people behind him and then you know we find out a few weeks later just how much money there was yeah (laughs) Well, and another thing that's maybe important to note that might not be obvious to people is that with districts like this, it's not the case that there's a ton of polling being done necessarily on these congressional races. And so it is kind of a mystery a little bit, you know, even in the days leading up, obviously with Zeldin Hochul, there's polling that's done, but some of these house seats, it's a little bit more ambiguous. And so you don't necessarily know what's going to happen. And so yard signs, things like that. I mean, we kind of mock them, you know, because Trump kind of made this, you know, the whole notion of crowd size and these intangible, I mean, they're right. tangible, but it's not like a poll, you know, it's more right. kind of vibes, you know, but well, there's a famous saying yard signs don't vote. Yes. Like that's a, yeah. that's a thing in, in, in poll in the campaigning and um, sure they don't, but in this case, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and another thing that's maybe <laughs> that's important to mention before we move on too much here is that Zimmerman makes a quite fateful decision not to invest in opposition research during his campaign. And we've learned since some of the scandals of, you know, around Santos have broken and kind of blown up that there were, you know, people within the Republican Party did know that there was some red flags, that there was some uh, fraud happening here in terms of how Santos was portraying himself. Um, I believe, you know, there was a story in the New York Times about how they did, you know, Santos's campaign, I, be- I believe it was in late 2021, did kind of a basic background check on him. And it turned up some of the things that we learned a year later from news reporting about, you know, that he didn't actually graduate from, is it called Baruch College? I might yes. get that wrong too. Yes, Baruch College. Right. Okay. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that he didn't actually work at Citigroup and Goldman Sachs. And, and then um, he had a wife. <laughs> that, yeah. You know, this openly gay Republican had a, a wife and there's been a lot of questions still not answered about that. If it was some sort of immigration fraud happening with that or, you know, what the story of that marriage, you know, is or was, and it's just one of many, you know, unanswered questions kind of uh, swirling around this guy. But Zimmerman makes the choice not to invest in doing kind of his his own oppo. And I'm not sure if you have any insight on this, but I believe his rationale was basically that he thought he could defeat Santos on the issues and that that was a more constructive way to go than, you know, trying to do kind of an ad hominem or dig in too deeply on his character. Is that is that your understanding as well, that it was kind of a, a calculated choice, but it ended up being one that really backfired because um, obviously his campaign was unsuccessful. And had he done even cursory opposition research of the sort that, you know, a background check that you would uh, be subjected to, like for employment, um, that he might have had, you know, a gold mine to work with that, you know, maybe could have prevented Santos from winning in the first place. It seemed like the Zimmerman campaign just had misstep after misstep. And considering that he was familiar, very familiar with local politics, he did not have a grasp on like how the landscape was was shifting around him. 
And um, he, you know, they did, they had some oppo on him before. There wasn't absolutely nothing. I mean, the Democratic Congressional Committee put out a report before the election about Santos and some of the problems surrounding him and some of the, the, the iffy stuff about his, his background and his finances. And it never really went anywhere. But mm -hmm. the interesting thing is that Zimmerman claims that they tried to pitch the story to media and that no one wanted it and that it just fell completely mm -hmm. flat. And the best part to me about that is that Zimmerman is a PR professional. Like that is his job outside of politics. And he is saying that he couldn't pitch and, and, and land a story about a guy who is potentially lying and committing fraud who's running for, for a house seat. So he, you know, he, there was some investment, but it wasn't used wisely. And to claim he didn't really have the money to do it is also just not true because the Zimmerman campaign had a lot of money. They raised a ton and um, they, they, I think they got too comfortable. They thought that they had it in the bag and they didn't look at the, the dynamics of what the New York Republican party were doing. And, and they, you know, it, it's, it's mystifying. It's still, after all this time, I really am, he, he's been on this media tour since, since the, the story broke about Santos and he's trying to position himself as the, the, um, the uh, candidate again for the Democrats, whether that's in a special election, if oh, Santos no. gets kicked out or if it's, you know, in 2024. And it's like, dude, no, it's a tough sell. No, yeah. like you, you were asleep at the wheel and everyone saw it. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that is a part of the story as well, in addition to the political aspect, the scandal aspect. I mean, I guess there is that kind of media aspect, too, that maybe even 20 years ago, when there was a more robust local newspaper infrastructure, local publications, you know, might have been able to dig into this a little bit more. I understand there was one local paper, I believe it's called like the North Shore Ledger. I, I might be getting that wrong off the top the of my head. The North but... Shore Leader. This is Leader. something okay. that yeah. I have wanted to dive into and I am going to at some point like it's on my list yeah North Shore leader is not something that anyone has ever heard of okay like I grew up there my parents lived there they they are very media literate they they read a lot no one knows what the North Shore leader is it's this tiny publication that's run by a Republican who ran for this seat a number of years ago. He ran as a Republican about a decade ago yeah. and lost the primary. And just, just to interject this while you're talking, because we, I didn't, the, so they broke a story before the 2022 campaign, basically calling Santos a fraud and a fake. But I, I, I don't believe they had specific revelations in the story in terms of the ones that later came out in the Times. But anyway, that's why we're talking about this, because this right. was the one paper that raised some red flags about Santos possibly being a fraud before the 2022 election. And they, and you know, this guy, it's really just one guy and yeah. he's getting a lot of, uh, a, a lot of coverage about you know, what he did and the warning signs that he tried, tried to point out to people. And I mean, in, even in this, there was like a couple of stories that he wrote about George Santos being a, and he wrote like, Oh, I, I really want to endorse a Republican, but I just can't in this case. So it was like, even though there were all these, alarm bells going off about the Santos guy he still like it was really hard for him to say like oh no please don't vote for this Republican so sure. for him to take this victory lap is just like pretty funny to watch from a media perspective you know as someone in media and then also from that media market he is I think giving himself a little bit too much credit and then I don't blame national outlets who aren't familiar 
for kind of swooping in on the story and saying this, you know, little mom pop shop tried to, to warn everyone about George Santos. No one listened. I, I think that is a bit of revisionist history. Sure. Yeah. And when you and I did the Q and a in January, you know, I kind of asked you questions about why some of these uh, lies weren't brought to public attention earlier. And we did not talk about this North store, North shore leader article. And there are a lot of people in the comments like, no, this paper did an article on it. It's like, well, sure. But it just, you know, it wasn't really anything that people were reading. Uh, maybe that should have gotten more attention, you know, in terms of other uh, New York papers that are larger in size, maybe aggregating that or following up on it, but it just, it did not happen. So it didn't really break through into the, the mainstream public yeah. consciousness at the time. But I mean, I think yeah. the bigger story is why the big papers and in the area weren't sounding the alarm on Santos. Like Newsday yeah. is the big Long Island paper and they have reporters dedicated to this. And um, you know, they, they had mentioned a couple of things in passing, but there was no big story that was like, this guy is a liar. He's not who he says he is and you should not vote for him. Yeah. It was sort of like, if you happen to, to read random articles from like the editorial board or whatever, you might catch a line about how Santos is like probably not a great guy. Well, and that was really funny too, doing some background for this podcast. I read the New York Times article about his victory in November, and it was actually part of a larger article where it was about the four Republicans who flipped these seats. But the only incriminating thing they had about Santos in the article was that he was in attendance on January 6th. That was kind of like, you know, George Santos, comma, who was there on January 6th, or whatever. And, and it's so quaint kind of looking back. I mean, obviously, right being at the coup attempt is a big deal and we shouldn't minimize that. But in light of everything we've learned since, it's like, that's really, you know, what was kind of the the big hit on this guy at the time. It's um, hard to believe that there wasn't uh, more known about this guy at the time. So I, I do want to fast forward to more present times here, um, starting in December, which is when the New York Times broke this big story that has kind of become, it opened the floodgates for what we've learned since then. Uh, the New York Times story talks about how, you know, they dug into his, background and didn't unearth any evidence that he had worked at Citigroup or Goldman Sachs, which he had claimed on the campaign trail to have done. Uh, they called into question his educational background, that he didn't go to Baruch College. They disclosed the aspect of his financial background where he loaned $700,000 to himself during his campaign. And it's not clear where that money came from. He said it came from a company called the Devolder Organization, which there was no record of really existing. And we could go on and on and on about all these revelations. So this story drops in mid-December. It kind of changes the whole ballgame, uh, opens up the floodgates of stories about George Santos. Tell us about how from that story to you converting your Substack into the Daily Santos. How did that work? What was your response to the New York Times story? And how did that lead to you covering Santos basically on, I wouldn't say quite necessarily a full-time basis, but spending a lot of your time writing about George Santos. Pretty full-time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, when that story first broke, I was immediately hooked into it. Um, I, because Long Island is not often on the national stage in that way, you know, local politics, there are not really well understood. There's not like a you know, mythology around it or like, you know, oh, Florida politics, Texas politics, New York politics is sort of just like this monolith of, of you know, okay, it's blue and that's it. But um, I knew that this was going to reveal to a much larger audience the reality of what was happening there. And then on top of it, of course, the allegations were just so ridiculous. I mean, he had lied about so many things and I think my initial thought was, well, if this is all in one article, imagine what else there is. Imagine how much more there is out there. 
And my first thought was, um, so uh, for those who don't know yet, he claimed that his, not only did he claim to be Jewish, but he claimed that his grandparents were uh, Holocaust survivors. And I forgot to mention that. Yeah, that was another big one. Yeah. And they fled uh, Ukraine and went to Brazil as refugees. Um, and that turned out to be not true. And um, so when the first story broke and they were talking about his, him being Jewish, I was like, we're about to find out that he is not really Jewish and that his grandparents did not survive the Holocaust. And sure enough, there was a story, like I think a two days, maybe three days after the, the first big story showing that records indicated that none of that heritage was true and he lied about it. And it was such a big betrayal and it, especially in the district where he is now the representative. It's a very Jewish district. And there are a lot of Jewish people who donated money to him and supported his campaign because um, I would say, even though Jews overall are, are mostly Democrats in this district, there's a lot of wealth, which equals being more conservative a lot of times. There's a lot of conservative Jews. And he, he preyed on that. He, he knew exactly what he was doing. And I think that calculation is what really got me thinking, wow, this guy is, you know, he's, he's running a real long-term scam. Like this is part of, this is a lifestyle. You know, this is who he is. It's a lifestyle he, scam. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he didn't just like happen upon this, you know, this was, this was premeditated. And so I wanted to be there as someone who understood um, more of the, the local dynamics. I wanted to be the one telling the story and help moving it along and become this authority on it. And so I just made a decision one day. I'm actually uh, a staffer for uh, another house, a democratic house member was like, you could have a daily newsletter on this guy. There's so much. And I was like, challenge accepted. And the brilliant idea. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. it. And I that didn't, obviously didn't need very much prompting. <laughs> and I just went for it. And it's been it's been a wild ride. Yeah. Well, because it's so, yeah, the New York Times story doesn't even get into uh, Santos's work at a firm that turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. It doesn't get into the story that we have since learned about of him allegedly defrauding a disabled veteran who he had raised funds for a surgery for his dog and then pocketed the money. Um, there was just so much stuff, you know, that the story couldn't possibly, you know, get to all of it. But, you know, it's amazing how much we've learned since then, including a story that you broke, which was about Santos's past as a drag performer. Now, do you think it's fair to say Drake performer in this context, because there's been some controversy about whether the images of Santos dressed in drag actually constitutes uh, being a performer. And this is what he has argued is that accusing him of being a drag performer is not fair because he didn't actually perform. He just dressed up in drag. But uh, what, what's your uh, what's your take on that? Well, from my reporting, I know that he performed at least once or twice as a as a younger man whether you think performer means you habitually perform or you currently <laughs> perform, I don't know. It's a lot of mincing words, which sure. conservatives love to do. But I, I say he, he used to dress in drag. It seemed that he would go to social gatherings um, for people who dressed in drag and he enjoyed doing that. And he was a, a willing and happy participant. Yeah. In it. Yeah. Just to back up a step here. So Marissa had the story of, and, and you interviewed a Brazilian drag performer and her name is uh katara is that right 
Uh, so Katara is it was, it was Santos's. That's right. Yeah, Santos's. right. Yes, um, yes. Eula Rochard was the Rochard, okay. uh, the was the drag queen that I spoke to. That's and right. She she knew George as a young man in Brazil and, and in the town that they both lived in, and um, she said when he was a teenager, 16, 17 years old, uh, I think he was probably exploring his identity and 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 figuring out you know who he was, and he um, spent a lot of time with Eula and her community, and by all accounts was was very happy and, and enjoyed it. And um, when I when I first got this story, I I wrestled with it a bit because I didn't want there to be any perception that dressing in drag is somehow a knock on him or yeah. a negative thing because it's not. If anything, seeing him in those photos is like the really the only time I've seen him like happy and having fun. He looks very happy and it actually made me kind of sad that he he left that part of his life behind for what he's become now. Um, but the point was, is that <clears throat> he is a very conservative Republican and he is aligning himself with people who are criminalizing drag performance mm-hmm. and criminalizing dressing in drag and standing by idly and not saying a word to defend the people who were, by all accounts, his friends at one point. Sure. Um, and so it was just more a story of hypocrisy and also just, um, the, the visual juxtaposition is, yeah. is, is undeniable. Sure. No, the, I mean, this wasn't on the level of his in, involvement of a, in a Ponzi scheme or defrauding veterans, but it's another aspect of his past that he has not been totally forthcoming about. And um, like you said, I mean, he's politically aligned with forces who are very anti-drag and trying to, in some cases now, criminalize it. And um, here he is, you know, apparently, um, at least in a previous part of his life, having no problem with it, actually partaking in it. So um, Santos ended up having to eventually um, respond to your reporting. And I believe he initially denied it, um, but eventually kind of conceded that, yep, this is me in these images, but I'm not actually a drag performer. I just did this once or twice. Uh, But that kind of really landed you, I think, on the map nationally in terms of being, you know, at the forefront of Santos reporting. Um, I believe you went on MSNBC and talked about that story. Um, and it worked out um, quite nicely for you because, I, you know, you talked to a Brazilian Drake performer. Uh, she, you did the interview in Portuguese, if I recall correctly, and you had a friend of yours translate. Is that right? To get the, the full scoop there? Yes, that's right. So I, <clears throat> uh, what happened was um, Yula, this, this Brazilian drag queen, she posted this photo of George in drag and I um, caught wind of it. And um, I wanted to talk to her, but I, I messaged her uh, on Instagram and asked her if she spoke English and, I, and she said no. And I was like, okay, I know time is of the essence. I know that if I don't do this now, someone else is going to very soon. So um, I'm very fortunate to have a friend who's from Brazil and she jumped in and, and did the translating for us and it worked out. That's great. amazing. Yeah, because yeah. if I if I had a scoop like that, I, I don't know anybody who speaks Portuguese, so I, I'd be kind <laughs> of lost there. So uh, that worked out quite nicely for you. So yes. <laughs> with, with the time we have left here, I want to get a, a couple uh, kind of big picture uh, questions to, to run by you and get your perspective on. And, and you know, I want to draw from your knowledge of the district and kind of get a sense of, you know, whether it be talking to people that you know in the district or reading some of the media there, even if it's social media posts, what are people in the district there saying these days about George Santos? I can't imagine that he's very popular. Um, However, you know, he's kind of made some noises recently about possibly running again. Um, You know, initially there was reporting that he wasn't going to do it. And now it seems like he's open to possibly doing it again. I can't imagine him 
winning, but you know, what, what's your sense uh, just of, of how he's being received? Has he, and here's another aspect of this, has he interacted with people in his district at all? Has there been any town halls? I, I don't think there have been because I would have heard about them, but you know, is he doing any sort of events with constituents or, you know, is he just sort of, my sense is that he's basically, you know, kind of hold up mostly in DC a little bit back in his district, but isn't really maintaining a public profile for kind of obvious reasons, but, but what's the situation like in his district these days? He's, yeah, he's sort of in hiding. No one even yeah. knows where he lives. Um, he, we're, yeah, we're not clear about his current address. He, the only time he's shown face in the district since he was sworn in was, uh, I think, a couple times at his district office in Queens. Um, some local leaders were able to see him and, and talk to him briefly. He had a weird interaction with a, a local legislator who told me about it. Um, and, and then afterwards, George tweeted about uh, the, the meeting between him and the legislator and completely mischaracterized what happened. And then the legislator had to, you know, issue a thing about, you know, it was obviously not a friendly meeting. It did not go well. And so he is just, he has alienated himself with pretty much everyone. The local Republican Party has disavowed him. They will not back him if he decides to run. Allegedly, they say that. Yeah. We'll see. Um, I will say that the other, the other House members have gone complete the other republican house members are completely scorched earth on santos at this point saying that he's a stain on the country and they've all called for him to resign so i have a hard time imagining them walking that back you know it's one thing to, with trump to kind of say well you know i don't think i'll support him but i'll support the nominee you know that sort of thing i i have a hard time imagining yeah, him supporting santos. Yeah. but i'd also believe anything if they think that there's a chance that he could still win and he's so famous now that's the thing he's famous like he is a known name he is known internationally and so I, I, I wouldn't be totally shocked if they turned around and said, or at least the, the local party. But anyway, to your, to your original question, um, as far as regular voters, they're, they're not supportive of him, of course. They're embarrassed, but there's also kind of a feeling of apathy. There doesn't seem to be this huge activist push to get him out. There, of course, there are activists who are working on it and are passionate, but it's, it's a pretty small group. And I think um, I, you know, I did this piece a couple a month or so ago where I went to different bagel places across the, the district to talk to voters and see what they were thinking, sort of my take on like the Ohio diner. And the, the thing that really surprised me most was that they weren't, voters weren't blaming the Republican Party. They weren't really blaming Santos. They were just saying like politics in general is broken. And they thought this was a symptom of just a broken system. And it was fascinating to me that they weren't like, oh, we definitely need to get a Democrat wow. back in here. That was not really said by anyone in particular. Wow. Uh, yeah. yeah, people so people just seemed really disillusioned. And I, you know, part of me doesn't blame them. It's like this literal con artist just got elected in their district right under their nose, and no one, there were no guardrails to to stop that sure. from happening. So the 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 next election there whether it's a special or it's just the regular election next year i don't know what's going to happen but i you know it's not a slam dunk for democrats i'll tell wow. you that 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 is unbelievable and you know we could do a whole other episode on kind of spinning this forward and what this says about our political system about the republican party um, but with the last couple minutes we have left i wanted to ask you about kind of your your current reporting and i know your most recent uh, post that you had on Santos dug into this new treasurer that he has. And this is a whole part, another part of the scandal that we didn't really get to in terms of the financial 
part of this, which could actually be the most legally perilous for Santos um, in terms of the campaign finance misrepresentations, you know, where this money came from that he loaned to his campaign. Um, talk about how that connects with this treasurer who, as I understand it, it's not even clear if this is a person who actually exists, but what's going on there with the, the new treasurer that Santos has? So in order for a candidate to raise money, um, they need to have a treasurer for their for their campaign. And so for a long time, it was uh, a woman named Nancy Marks. And she is in deep hot water because she is intimately tied with a lot of uh, financial malfeasance. And there's a lot of investigations going on. And so she finally stepped down or was fired, unclear, um, from his campaign at the end of of January. And for a while, he didn't even have a treasurer. And that is not legal. You can't, you need to have someone in that position. They announced one guy and the guy was like, no, it's, I didn't accept the job. I guess he had interviewed for it. Interestingly enough, he's the treasurer for Anthony D'Esposito, who's one of the other Republicans on Long Island who's been railing against Santos. Um, and then finally, uh, per an F- FEC filing a couple weeks ago, we find out that some guy named Andrew Olson is his new campaign treasurer. But aside from a Gmail address on the FEC filing, there's no record of an Andrew Olson working in campaign finance in New York. There's the address that is listed for him is George Santos's sister's old apartment. And reporters went there to talk to people who live in the building and no one had ever heard of him and, and no one knew of anyone uh, uh, by that name. And so he is a phantom at this point, and he is just another big question mark on, on the Santos campaign. And it's just whenever you think it can't get shadier, they somehow add a, a new twist. <laughs> yeah. And that's, you know, the whole issue of there not being really any enforcement for this stuff, too, or at least oh. it takes forever, you know, is kind of a whole nother aspect that. We don't have time to get to today, but Marissa, I very much appreciate you joining us. Um, we'll definitely have you back because as we're wrapping this up, I'm realizing that, man, we could spend two hours on George Santos. So yeah, uh, everybody check out, <laughs> yeah, check out Maria's reporting at The Handbasket. Uh, check her out at MSNBC. But if you're interested in this George Santos story, The Daily Santos, a.k.a. The Handbasket, is the place to be following. So be sure to check that out. And Marissa, thanks again for joining us. Thank you so much. Yep. Uh, Like I said at the beginning, uh, please follow and subscribe to my YouTube page. That's at The Aaron Rupar Show. And subscribe if you're listening to this, please, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, whether it be on Spotify, Overcast, Apple, etc. I'll have another episode of this next Wednesday. And so I hope you'll tune in then. And thanks for joining us for The Aaron Rupar Show. Mm -hmm.